Morning, glory, America. It's Hugh Hewitt, 14th day of July, 2017th at the last radio hour of the week, which means it's time for the Hilltale Dialogue this week. Not Dr. Larry Arney, he's still floating around the Baltic, but again, Dr. Matthew Spaulding, with whom we've been having great fun the last few weeks. He is the director of the Kirby Center, Hillsdale College's lantern in the uh, light of the Capitol, uh, sending forth a sweet reason and truth to the members. And boy, do I hope they listen this week. Uh, Matt Spaulding, you have picked a good time to be here because <laughs> everything is going to happen next week on uh, the health care bill. And, no, no, uh, this, is a great, this is a great example. I mean, we can get into the details, but just thinking more broadly for a moment here. This is a great example of how politics works. You know, you've been, you've been talking going into the Constitutional Convention. The convention was a grand compromise. It was messy. All sorts of side deals were made. But the outcome, the structural outcome, created this great thing called the U.S. Constitution. That's how politics works. We're seeing it in front of us, and I can't get over how some people don't see what's happening. This is, a, this is actually a very interesting and, I think, positive uh, move here in terms of how they're trying to deal with an extremely difficult problem, namely this uh, Obamacare uh, behemoth. How do you move it? How do you change it? How do you, how do you put things into it that structurally gets it to somewhere else? That's what I think is going on, and yet people are looking at it in a very small ball way, I think. Uh, and I want to talk about uh, the big picture. Happy but Bastille also Day, by the way. Oh, yes. Happy Bastille Day. I will play for you, by the way, in segment three, some of President Trump's comments from France. He had a very productive uh, visit Good. to France. But I want to start with the idea that uh, some Republicans are saying they may not even vote to move to proceed to debate the amendment. Uh, this strikes me as an abdication of their Article One responsibilities. They are sent there to debate and vote. And Senator Collins and Senator Paul have said they will not move to a debate, which just strikes me as astonishingly cowardly. What do you think, Matt Spall? Oh, no, I, I, I agree. I mean, so much of how Congress works today, in the Senate in particular, but in general, is uh, legislators who have a, 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 a have taken a, have a constitutional obligation to legislate, as you said, to, to carry out their duties as the lawmaking branch hide behind procedural things. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is, uh, this whole thing is being done through reconciliation. There are you know, ways in which this is being crafted that are imperfect, uh, but usually used as ways to either get something through or get around something. But the, 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 one, the immediate one right here is that they won't even get to to a vote, to get to a debate, to talk about it. And there will be, once it gets up to, do, to a debate, there are going to be amendments. At some point, uh, McConnell will have a substitute bill. There will be additional changes. And so if they have objections, that's their opportunity to make those objections known, to deliberate, which is, you know, the, the Senate is the greatest deliberative body in the world, to deliberate, debate, and vote, and come up with legislation. It was the greatest deliberative body in the world. I, I, honestly, if I, I am so stunned by the idea that they wouldn't proceed to debate. I've been talking about it nonstop for two days. If Susan Collins doesn't like the bill and doesn't like the fact that it isn't bipartisan, she can offer an amendment to return under the rules of reconciliation in two weeks after eight 
senators, four Republicans and four Democrats, have proposed an alternative under the rules of reconciliation. She can try that. Rand Paul can offer a complete repeal amendment. They can all try within the rules of reconciliation to move the bill. But to run away is, I think, going to leave a mark. No, I, I think this is, a, this is a terrible mark, and the disaster here is if, if this thing collapses, not just for the Obamacare problem, but for everything else, this would definitively prove that, that Congress is dysfunctional and unable to legislate. What does that mean for Congress passing legislation? What does that mean for the agenda of this president? What does it mean for upcoming midterm elections? And this, this moment, uh, this, this door is slightly ajar, uh, will be closed. And, uh, I and so, don't quite realize that. Well, that's the that's the kind. I've talked with Lonnie Chen. I've talked with John Dickerson. You know, two very different people in in the roles that they play. Both agree on the political consequences of refusing to debate, which is disaster for the party and complete disaster for the individuals who vote no. Now, if you're John McCain and 80 years old, you may not give a damn. And if you're Rand Paul and you don't care, you may not give a damn. But Susan Collins wants to be governor of Maine. And all these Mainers tell me, oh, we're different up here. We won't mind. I think they fundamentally don't get the idea of reversing a senator who has many times voted to, re- to repeal Obamacare. Uh, uh, what that says about the individual who does not proceed to debate. Well, I, I think she wants to run for governor. But the comments I've seen is she also wants to... Uh, have this collapse so they can open up a discussion with the, the Democratic Party and, and, and start with a, a whole new bipartisan approach. I think that's what she thinks is the way she's going to preserve her political position and run for governor. Um, I just don't see it, but you know, she's a harder case. I think Rand Paul's a very hard case. Um, Heller's actually shown some movement in his comments lately. Uh, they just need to pick up one of those, one of those. Uh, I think the Uh, other guys are in pretty good shape. Well, I don't know about McCain. McCain made some comments last night. Dean Heller's done. I mean, this this was the easiest conversion. He 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 took a look at the fact that fourteen out of seventeen counties have no alternative uh, on the exchanges. He took a look at the fact you can't lose twenty five to thirty percent of the Republicans and win. And I think Susan Collins needs to hear from her constituents. They all do. But I think Shelley Moore Capito will vote to open debate. I think Lisa Murkowski will vote to open debate. I believe Rob Portman Portman. will. Uh, It's really McCain, Collins and Rand Paul. So let's talk about Rand Paul. You know Rand Paul, right? Yeah. Yeah, Why wouldn't you move to debate? Well, I, I, you know, look, this is the this is the classic dilemma of of a, of, of a guy like Rand Paul, and and you see there's between his father and him as he's trying to craft a a viable political libertarian argument that has political legs to it. Um, but he's he, I think he's worried about two things. One is he sees this as a um, uh, an insurance bailout super fund. He says it's it's throwing a bunch of money into propping up markets, uh, and this is cronyism at its worst, um, although he then says that he's not opposed to an imperfect bill, and if it were simply an imperfect bill, he would vote for it. it it's kind of an odd position. And what, what I don't see that he doesn't understand is that the, the way this bill is currently crafted, especially with his Cruz Amendment, is that it changes the dynamics of how this actually operates. It shifts a lot of the market down to the state level, uh, and it opens that up. So you now have states will offer 
some that are Obamacare-type plans. They'll have to offer one, but they'll offer some. And then market plans. And you open it up, and you've got a free market competition. And that's going to play out and change the structure of how this works. And, and that, from Rand Paul's point of view, you're looking at a shift away from Hayek's fatal conceit of planning, central planning, down to a more kind of market force at the state level. And I don't see why he doesn't see that. I don't either, unless he walks out, votes to proceed, and having um, and then says, ha ha, to the Hugh Hewitts and the, and the uh, uh, skeptics of the world. I'm not, I'm not quite sure I'm going to call Matthew Spaulding a skeptic of the world, because you, you get along with Rand Paul, but he's going to say, aha, you guys all got played by me. I got exactly what I wanted, maximum airtime, and we proceeded to debate, and I'll make my arguments knowing that I'm central to this. I mean, he could, he could be doing that, and I would I'd be happy to be played by Rand Paul, but I don't think he's doing that. I, it's like no. a castle. It's like Rasputin in the, uh, Raz, uh, Raz, uh, Rapunzel in the castle. No one can climb the hair. No one can get into that head. It's like there is no logic there. No, that's right. So he's he's said that on the one hand, he's he's willing to uh, support legislation to step in the right direction. This clearly is, and I think in a much more fundamental way than it was previously, uh, and I think it actually turns the the structure greatly in the favor of free markets. Um, but he, what he seems to be most opposed to is this, uh, you know, essentially a stabilization fund to help deal with people with pre-existing conditions and whatnot in those insurance markets. But that's a one-time thing. That's a that's a fund of money. Uh, but you're getting the structural changes. And that, that distinction between fundamental structural change, which plays out over time in his favor, and the, 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 the spending pieces that he didn't like, and, and that's fine. And I don't necessarily like them either. But that's, that's a cost, right? Um, those things are put in there, uh, I think, for practical reasons. Uh, they're going to work for practical reasons. They're going to be getting, also getting some extra votes. But the structural changes, if you're looking at it from a legislator's point of view and you're trying to change something that's going to play out, it's there. It's there for him to see. I'll be right back with Matthew Spaulding, director of the Kirby Center of Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale available at hillsdale.edu. Go over and sign up for Imprimus. All of our conversations on matters large and eternal are found at hugh4hillsdale.com. Stay tuned, America. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. Two here at Join Now by Matthew Spaulding, director of the Kirby Center. Dr. Spaulding helps run Hillsdale College's lantern in the shadow of the Capitol, bringing sweet reason and light there. All things Hillsdale available at hillsdale.edu. If you haven't yet signed up for the Constitution course, the brand new one, go and do it immediately. All of the Hillsdale dialogues I have conducted with uh, Dr. Spaulding, Dr. Larion, president of Hillsdale College, and their colleagues over four plus years are collected for your binge listening pleasure at HughForHillsdale.com. Once you start, you will not stop. You can travel every day and get smart every day, going back to Homer and coming up to the present day. Uh, before I move to Donald Trump, next segment, Dr. Spaulding, I wanted to ask you about DACA. What is, what is the news on that front? Well, I think some of the interesting things happening there as well. So uh, Secretary Kelly uh, has told the Hispanic Congressional Hispanic Caucus that this thing's not defendable. As you know, that uh, so Texas is is threatening to sue. To uh, they already brought down DAPA and and they're going to get rid of DACA, 
which is the delayed action for children who were brought here at, at a certain age. Uh, and Kelly has told them that, look, in case, unless Congress does something, this thing is going down. We're not going to defend it. What I think is interesting about that is that that sets up a great possibility of, yet again, Congress doing something and using that leverage to get something else, potentially a great compromise. You can put together some, some legislation on DACA, but in turn, getting something else for it. Maybe uh, uh, border security and E-Verify. This is a great, another great example of how Congress could be in the middle of this doing some good. They could go big. I argued for this in the fourth way, that That's immigration right. offers the opportunity to go big. If you put, And by the way, not just DACA. If you put regularization for the vast majority of people in the country without permission and say, if you are not you know, an MS-13 gang member, if you haven't been arrested, if, if you can produce evidence of, uh, of work habit and, and uh, non-dependency on governmental benefits, we will approve you a purple card. We're not going to let you vote, but we're going to let you stay here. You can get a lot out of the Democrats at the same time. I mean, you can do so, so, a big deal. That's right. So the circumstances set up Howard to get that started, right? We, there's, there's a lack of trust. You need to rebuild that trust. So here's a situation where you got something that they really want. The courts pretty clearly are going to throw this thing out. The administration is not going to defend it, but hey, we're willing to work with you. That's your first deal. It gets that on the road to go. I think that's a, that's a classic example of how the legislature can, um, can fix this situation. And you've got a, a, a president, a Congress, and a court system who's going to be on the sidelines pushing in that direction. I am encouraged, Matt Spaulding, that Senator McConnell has extended the Senate session two weeks and the House Freedom Caucus is urging the Speaker to stay here as well. They've got to get some work done. No, that's that's right. Especially on on all the all the appointments, especially these judicial appointments. I think that's what's 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 driving this. I suppose the health care will maybe linger as well. But they've got uh, what they've made thirty judicial nominees uh, out there nominations, and they've got one hundred and twenty vacancies. Um, they just put up a dozen or so yesterday, including a Hillsdale graduate, by the way. I don't know if you know. Oh, who that. got nominated yesterday? I didn't see that. Did they put out some uh, court nominees? They, they put out 10 names. One was uh, Tom uh, Farr from North Carolina, who's a uh, 1970s Hillsdale grad. I'm looking at district court judges, district court judges, district court judges, district court yeah. judges, yep. district court, district court, no circuit court. I, I, am, nope. I am perplexed, Matthew. Uh, there are 15 or 16 vacancies for which no nominee exists on the circuit courts. They are akin to God, right? Because the Supreme Court only takes 90 cases a year, maybe 100 on a big year. The circuit courts decide the law of the United States, and the Trump administration is frozen. What is the deal? Yeah, I, I you know, the, the people over there who are doing this are good people. I don't know. I, it, it's perplexing. Um, you know, and, and it's not the Senate that's holed up at this point. Uh, on, on those, they got to get the names over there. I know they're they're vetting people, they're looking at people, but uh, gosh, it's it's hard to find out what what the holdup is. But I, I am I'm told that the blue slips, the significance of these of these nominations. I am told that not one Democratic senator has returned one blue slip on one judge, which I think well, is going to lead Senator Grassley to destroy the blue slip process. Yep, yep. Uh, and again, that's one of these. It's not a rule. It's not necessarily, you know, it's, it's not a law. It's merely a tradition. 
where you respect the nominations in, in uh, states where those senators are, but they're clearly using it to object, uh, uh, obstruct. obstruct. And, and, and they just go. got to throw it out. It's not constitutional. It's anti-constitutional. I'll be right back with Dr. Matthew Spaulding, Hillsdale.edu for all things Hillsdale. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America to Hewitt. It is the Hillsdale Dialogue, our weekly conversations about matters of the West that go back a long time. Matthew Spaulding is my guest today, Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, still floating around somewhere in Europe, but Dr. Spaulding is holding down the Kirby Center, the fort that Hillsdale has built of sweet reason in the shadow of the Capitol. Dr. Spaulding, a couple of headlines. Um, the terrorist attack in Israel today killed two Israeli policemen, although Al Jazeera is reporting it breaking at least three Palestinians killed in an altercation with Israeli police in Jerusalem's old city. You know, that's fake news when terrorists attack police and the police kill the terrorists. And then Al Jazeera U.S. says three three Palestinians killed in an altercation with Israeli police. That's just fake news, isn't it? It's how they're being played in terms of how the response. Absolutely. I mean, we got to get the good, good information as to what is actually going on in these places. And gee whiz, it sounds like the Israelis are still on top of things. And last night, uh, five people were attacked with acid attacks in Great Britain. Uh, no word yet whether the perpetrators were terrorists. But what do you think? What's your guess? I highly likely. I mean, I look at a lot of these things uh, as you, you remember the, the, the patterns. These patterns go all the way back uh, historically. Oftentimes, groups do things to test your security. So they're not necessarily a big attack, but there's, there's something to see whether they can get away with it, whether this will work, whether this could be done. And so I look at a lot of these smaller things with that in mind. The reaction shouldn't be, oh, that was only one or two people, so therefore it's not a terrorist act. The reaction should be, is this someone testing our security? Uh, When I read the Telegraph story, the number of acid attacks in London is so extraordinarily high. It's just it's really remarkable. Six hundred this year. Six hundred acid attacks in London. Who knew? Uh, Let me go to Donald Trump, the president in France. By the way, are you surprised that President Macron and Donald Trump are getting along so well? (laughs) Um, yes and no. On the one hand, he's he's this kind of anti-Trump figure. They they he was said to kind of have stopped the 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 Brexit movement with his election. But in an odd way, I think Trump and Macron have a lot to talk about and work on. Right? Uh, Merkel is is um, so vehemently anti-Trump; she's not an option. Uh, May is weakened. Where do you turn for a European ally you can have some conversations with? Um, the fact that they both downplay their differences, I think, is 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 fascinating, uh, because it it opens up that this potentially could be a very important relationship for uh, the Trump administration's relations with Western Europe. All right, let's go then to what the president had to say. A few things he held a joint press conference. There was a lot of the ordinary. We love France. France loves us by both presidents. But then they got some questions. Here's question number five. A long-standing relationship with Russia as well, and I think it's important that both of us have direct discussion and contact with President Putin. One of the great things that came out of that meeting, by the way, even though it's not part of the question, was the fact that we got a ceasefire that now has lasted for, I guess, Mr. President, almost five days. 
And while five days doesn't sound like a long period of time, in terms of a ceasefire in Syria, that's a very long period of time. And uh, that was a result of having communication with a country. So during that five-year, five-day period, a lot of lives have been saved. A lot of people were not killed. No shots have been fired in a very, very dangerous part of the world. And this is one of the most dangerous parts of Syria itself. So by having some communication and dialogue, we were able to have a ceasefire. And it's going to go on for a while. And frankly, we're working on a second ceasefire in a very uh, rough part of Syria. And if we get that and a few more, all of a sudden, you're going to have no bullets being fired in Syria. And that would be a wonderful thing. Now, Matt Spaulding, this brings up the Tucker Carlson Max Boot uh, exchange. Have you seen that? No, I've not. What, did, what uh, are they going after? It was quite the incendiary toss down between Tucker and Max, both of whom are friends of the show. Right. I know them both, and they're both very smart. Yep. And they got into it two nights ago in a in a pretty uh, hammer throwing, brick lobbing way over whether or not. Um, Republicans who understand Donald Trump is meeting with Vladimir Putin out of geopolitical necessity are sufficiently denunciatory, if that's a word, of Putin's evil. Now, I'm always very comfortable saying he's a sinister, evil man. But FDR met with Stalin. Nixon met with Brezhnev and Mao. They're all mass murderers. Reagan met with Gorbachev. Not quite the same mass murderer, but an instrument of oppression for hundreds of millions of people. Sometimes you got to meet with sinister people, and I think you can have it both ways here, that you sometimes have to deal with the devil, but to use the old saying, you've got to sup with a very long spoon. No, that's right. But part of that, I think, and, and this administration is only learning how to do this, and I think is, needs to do a better job, is how you talk about it, right? I mean, you're, you're right in pointing out those historical examples of people meeting with Stalin and their like, but they were careful in what they said and how they said it, and how they explained it. Uh, I think the, the, the way it works is, is you need to have a stronger, very clear picture of what our, what our interests are in having those conversations, where we're going, what's going on, um, and, and why we're doing it. You, you, know, you, can, you can back down and say more, kind of moderate some of your rhetoric against them, but you can't not say anything. Uh, and I think that, that just causes a lot more, more confusion. I mean, to think about how Reagan talked about it, or how Churchill talked about it, or or even FDR and some of his uh, better statements. Right? I remember Churchill saying, these "Guys are problematic." Yeah, that that if the devil invaded Germany, he would find the occasion for That's a few right. kind words on the but, floor but, but, but of that Parliament. But still, meant it was the devil. <laughs> yeah, but it still meant it was the devil, and right, so exactly. that is. So, uh, how would you phrase it? How would you put it? How would you advise Team Trump? to make sure that they are communicating clearly that while they must do negotiations with Russia, it is our preeminent uh, geopolitical enemy. Well, they, they still they, they, they could do some small things as well. I mean, it's, it's the same thing with the conversations with the Chinese. They should point out uh, various things for which there are sanctions, uh, human rights abuses, things around the, 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 that are central uh, to what we see as problematic and examples of, of how they are despotic. You should always point those out. You shouldn't let those fall by the wayside. Uh, and that's what bothers people like, like the Chinese and Russians so much when you point those things out. Uh, but just be clear about why you're talking to this person. What's, what's, what's going on here? Um, he wants to change the relationship, the how we look at other nations, including Russia. Uh, he, should, he, should, he needs to talk about that more and walk people through it. He's, he's trying to transition from this world 
um, in which um, uh, we had essentially the Cold War view of, uh, of, of the Soviets uh, to this view of Russia. But it's nuanced in the sense that Russia is still a strategic threat. They're still problematic. Uh, Putin is still a dastardly fellow. Um, yet we're a big nation. We have a lot of interest, and we got to figure out how to how to operate in the world. That's no, not something we have. We have great examples, at least in the modern era, of, of being able to talk about it. And he's going into this uh, without a lot of experience himself, but also in a way that uh, thinkers in, st- in strategic matters on both in the left and right aren't normally versed in talking. Now, breaking news at this hour, uh, Matthew Spaulding. Uh, the Russian lawyer who, from NBC News, the Russian lawyer who met with the Trump team after a promise of compromising material on Hillary Clinton was accompanied by a Russian-American lobbyist, a former Soviet counterintelligence officer who's suspected by some U.S. officials of having ongoing ties to Russian intelligence. NBC News is not naming the lobbyist who denies any current ties to the Russian spy agency. He accompanied the lawyer, Natalia, to the June 2016 meeting at Trump Tower. The Russian-born American lobbyist served in the Soviet military, emigrated to the U.S., where he holds dual citizenship. Uh, Another riff on the Donald Trump Jr. story. What do you make of the riff? What do you make of the story? Well, I, I, this, is, this is all uh, a mess, to say the least. My, my, I think there are a couple of ways to, 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 to read this. Um, one is we know that the Russians have strategic interests. They have for a long time uh, Putin has had one of his as one of his top objectives uh, to get rid of the sanctions that are in the um, uh, Baginsky Act. Uh, they've been trying to do that. They were doing it before this, this election cycle. There was uh, a piece out recently that uh, Dana Rohrbacher, Congressman Rohrbacher from California, had been approached by people wanting to have these exact same conversations, and he had them, as were other members of Congress even before this. So the Russians were clearly going after their own strategic interests. I think in the heat of the, the campaign, I think uh, Trump Jr. and Kushner and uh, Manafort jumped on on this. They're doing opposition research. It turned out they weren't giving them any. The Russians were pursuing their strategic interests about that that sanction. Um, and I think this has become a, a, a much bigger mess. Uh, I think there was some, some uh, back and forth going on in terms of wanting to get that opposition research. You know, other than the, the Russians going after what they wanted, I still don't see an underlying legality uh, or, or a law being violated here that's the root of what uh, the left wants it to be in terms of you know, going towards their, their patter towards impeachment. There are some allegations of uh, cooperation with an espionage effort directed at America, but those are, are focused at Jared Kushner and the data set. The Don Trump Jr. meeting simply does not violate any criminal statutes of which I am aware unless he has lied right. about it under oath to a federal official. And so, or not even under oath if you're under, if you're under investigation. So there's 18 U.S.C. 1001. More will come out on all of these things. My view is, Matthew Spaulding, everyone ought to dump everything out about every meeting with everyone uh, from uh, it just just put it out there and see what comes up and be prepared to be truthful under oath to everyone no i I completely agree that's the 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 best answer to this is in all of these scandals uh i use that i'm using orphan quotes here right it's it's not the facts that, that that destroy people it's usually the way it's played out and how it's milked and what it becomes and people tend to then say things later 
that aren't consistent with the earlier facts, and they get in trouble for that. I mean, that's you know historically always the political problem, and that's why this is a real political problem for them. And you went uh, to the end game off the table and get the back end, to business. Yeah, the end game is impeachment. And if the House right. flips because the Senate doesn't vote on Obamacare, and we'll come back to that in our last segment, uh, if the House flips, they will impeach Donald Trump. That doesn't mean remove. That requires two thirds of the Senate to remove. But the House simply requires Absolutely. a simple majority. Absolutely. They will impeach. If- and the circumstances are now set up, even though I think some don't want to have this happen in the Democratic Party. But this election, uh, this midterm election, will be an impeachment election. This will be an issue. Uh, we've got to flip the House in order to do that. And this will play out. And I'm not sure it necessarily will play to the Democrats' advantage. Uh, I don't know either, but I know that that is exactly what they plan on doing. They're going to campaign on impeachment, and if they win, they will impeach Donald Trump. And what will that do to the politics of America, do you think? 30 seconds. I I, I think it will just divide it and and make it riven even even more than it was. This now becomes the way to go after president. president. But again, shows the weakness of Congress. This is going to be an attack on, on, on the executive, and this is now going to be the pattern. It was done for one, done for the other. I think the rule of law continues on its road to collapse. Don't go anywhere. I'll be back to conclude this very important penultimate week of the health care debate with Matthew Spaulding. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America. It is Hugh Hewitt, joined by Dr. Matthew Spaulding, head of the Kirby Center, Hillsdale College's institution that helps guide congressmen, senators, and their staffs to the right answer. I want to conclude where we began, Matt Spaulding. Next week has a vote on two votes. The first vote will be to proceed to debate on the Senate GOP health care bill. If that is yes, that requires 50 Senate yes votes and Mike Pence, then they will move through an amendment process called Votorama. It will go on and on. I pointed out on Twitter earlier today the consequences of a no vote on the motion to proceed, question mark, end of careers for Senate GOP who vote no. They would own Obamacare, never forgotten. Do you agree? I I agree. I think if they fail to even proceed, this is probably going to be the end of Republicans control of Congress. And from there, it just spins out. And I don't know where this party goes. Uh, And and expand on that, why you believe that, because there may be uh, one or more. I've posted, by the way, all of the phone numbers of the senators who are on the fence about voting yes to proceed and their Twitter handles at HughHewitt.com expand and and my conversation with Lon Chen and John Dickerson, two very different people from Matt Spaulding. We all agree the same thing. Why would any consultant advise otherwise, Matt Spaulding? Well, I, I, mean, I mean, look, this, this is uh, you, you have to back up into the broader debate between uh, left and right political parties uh, from the Obamacare administration to this administration. Uh, this was chosen as the the first thing t- out of the gates, uh, a, a key promise uh, for several elections, numerous votes in Congress, to repeal uh, and then replace Obamacare. Uh, this this is is a defining moment for the direction, the new direction of a Republican Party, uh, in terms of what it wants to do, how it wants to go after the the modern state, how it wants to begin its reforms. Uh, to that, you can add that this is the first step necessary to then move on to tax reform and other big things that are the key to this uh, agenda generally, but of this administration in particular. But in a larger sense, if they can't get this through, 
and and it's very susceptible to the types of uh, negotiations we're seeing going on right now. This is a very reasonable piece of legislation. It does a lot of very great things in it. It still has in it the the uh, repeal of the employer mandate, the individual mandate. It still changes Medicaid from an uh, an entitlement, uh, and now it adds this this new dynamic, which it creates a state federalism competition. This is a good movement forward in terms of legislation. If they can't do this with the majority uh, and ways to work as a majority, how can they legislate at all? Uh, and uh, the 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 the, the uh, the, the conclusion that an observer makes is that a Republican majority in control of, the, of Congress and the presidency can't uh, govern. And, and that's a devastating blow to their future, because once they've not gotten past this gate, I can tell you, the, 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 the Democratic Party, the opposition, they're not looking for a great way to begin negotiations on how to make good legislation. They're looking at the midterms and they're looking at the next presidential election. Uh, they're out for uh, a, a big political battle, and we will see that battle. And in that battle, the Republicans have nothing to show for it. So I think they're digging their own grave. Uh, they are digging their own grave. Uh, do you think they will do so? Uh, it's it's a hard call. I, I think there's there's got to be a lot of pressure on these people to to not only see the particulars, uh, but to see the larger picture about you know what, what's going on. This is a moment where I mean. I think, I think the Senate in particular, for, for a long time now, they've been able to get around hard votes. They've been able to put things off. They've not been put in this spot. They're now put in this spot, which means they've got to make hard hard decisions. And the, 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 the duty of, of people like us and, and, and people who are interested in these broader themes of American politics and history is to constantly elevate the discussion so they understand what is it, what is going on here from a larger perspective, and they can understand and make those particular circumstantial decisions in light of a larger principled understanding of things. And, and, and so you, you, to, you name it, the particular senators, they've got to have those conversations. If we go to that larger, higher level, and I've urged everyone when they call or email or tweet these senators to be persuasive, not profane, to be uh, reasonable, right. not vulgar, to try and say this matters a great deal to engage in the process for senators in the greatest deliberative body in the world to deliberate in public on the floor about actual proposals. They've got to bring it out to do this, Matt Spaulding. It's an abdication to run away. No, ab- absolutely. And they're, they're hiding behind that and they need to, to, to move forward. Look, the problem with, with um, uh, on, on one side of the equation, you have the argument that the, the, the problem is that the perfect is the enemy of the good, right? The, the Rand Paul's the world, and, and other conservatives need to realize that uh, you can't make everything perfect from the get-go, and if it's not perfect, you can't even go into the sandbox. That argument doesn't work. From the other side, however, they're, they're willing to work with imperfect things. They do quite often, as a matter of fact. But they're not even willing to have that conversation and get into that debate. Deliberation, debate, legislating, that's, that's what Congress does. That's their constitutional duty. That's what Article 1 means. Let's see it. Let's play this out. Let's hope you are right. Uh, thank you so much, Matt Spaulding of Hillsdale College Kirby Center. All things Hillsdale at Hillsdale.edu. 
All of the updates on uh, the debate next week will be here on the Hugh Hewitt Show. Don't forget, tomorrow morning, 8 a.m. on MSNBC, I'll bring you the latest on the health care debate and Congressman Ron DeSantis on the Comey memos. Don't miss tomorrow morning, 8 a.m. on MSNBC. Thank you, Dwayne. Thank you, Adam. Thanks, everyone, for listening to the Hugh Hewitt Show. You too, Samurai Ben.